It's time to adjust your dials, pour another cup of coffee, or whatever it is you like to drink when you're listening to another edition of The Weekly Wrap. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and we're going to be covering a few fun stories today, starting out with a great one about how no game is actually hard or easy. Of course, we're talking about video games in the story that I'll be going over, and yet at the same time, it's hard not to imagine that these rules don't apply to every game. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, but first, let's go over the rest of our topics, including a great story about an author who studied the works of Patricia Highsmith and the character of Tom Ripley, and whose own personal life appears to mirror so many of the elements that made those books so compelling. Now, just what are the connections between the talented Mr. Ripley and newly published first-time novelist Dan Mallory? You'll have to listen for more on this great article from the New Yorker. And as fun as that might be, perhaps there's no greater joy for any Batman comic book or evil villain fan than the announcement that the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix finally had a trailer for us to enjoy, inspect, and clearly captured at least my attention. And then to wrap things up, a fun little article I found on GEMR.com about five more controversial comics. Five more, you say? What were the first five? Well, check out these five, and then maybe, if there's enough response slash interest, or if I just decide to open the great vaults and dig around a bit, we can find the original article about five controversial comics. But check out this one on the five more controversial comics. They're either stories you've heard before, stories you'll want to share, or just a chance to tick through history, both recent and not so, to remember when it is that comics, in one way or another, go just a bit too far. Settle back in for this edition of The Weekly Wrap. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. Let's get started. Now, the first story I want to get into for this week was just published two days ago, and it was featured in Variety, written by Rami Ishmael, called There's No Such Thing as a Hard Game or an Easy One. And it points out that the author first cheated when they were seven years old, playing the 1993 classic game Doom. They were using a floppy drive, and the Doom label said Doom I-D-D-Q-D-I-D-K-F-A in all caps. 
And he mentions that it took a little while for him to realize that the string of letters was actually two separate cheat codes. IDDQD for invulnerability. IDKFA for every key, weapon, and ammo. And now with the two cheat codes, he had the, I guess the <laughs> ammo to cause all the mayhem he want through every level. And he goes on to talk about how many of his favorite childhood games involved cheat codes. That he spawned photon laser troopers amidst Greek armies in Age of Empires. Cheated to reveal the map of StarCraft so he could study what the AI did. And went on to pursue more cheats as he not only played games, but then spent the rest of his early life up till now, making games and learning about them. And that brings up a really interesting idea about this concept of difficulty. Because clearly he's using cheats because there's something that he couldn't get past or something he wanted assistance with. And the cheat was a way of getting around that. And what led to this story is something really quite interesting. And what happens next is perhaps most interesting because of the way it comes about. And that's the confluence of two events that Raimi discusses. And the way that they provide the two ways that difficulty has and can become such a problem. The first was that Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed Origins announced a tourism mode that basically has no challenge in it. And then Studio MDHR's indie release Cuphead was ranked even by himself as something that was really hard. Now this inevitably led to some very interesting discussions and John Walker of Rock Paper Shotgun soon released an article arguing for skippable bosses and before you knew it the internet was on fire which led Mr. Ishmael to talk about some of the things that maybe people forget when it comes to game making storytelling and what the goal of a game really is. Now he starts off with a fun idea, which is games are like Santa. They're not real. And even though that could sound preposterous, he's really quick to say that everything in a game is essentially fake. It's a, an illusion. A, a form of smoke and mirrors, and that it's his job to trick you into believing that what's happening is real and that the solution you came up with on your own is yours and that you did a great job figuring it out even though the whole thing has been staged to point you in that direction. He goes on to refer to a common concept in movies and other mediums that 
can provide the environment that allows you to forget that what you're seeing can't possibly be real. It's a very common concept called suspension of disbelief. And it basically means that you're fully aware that something is not real, but because of the quality or the context, you're willing to let go of that belief. And then he points out that the game has to make sure it doesn't have certain things in it that can pull you out. Things like bugs, animation clipping, texture pop-up, bad music transitions, different lines of dialogue talking over each other, bad writing. And basically any noticeable reminder that you're sitting at a screen damages that suspension of disbelief the moment you're pulled out. And what I like about this is it's something that I've heard described in almost every writing class I've ever been in and in every criticism of literature that I've ever heard or read. And it's the idea that you need to suspend the disbelief and also provide as few opportunities as possible for the reader to pull themselves out. I'll admit that when I first heard about this in Creative Writing 101 or back in my college days or even when I was working with others to talk about writing, in some ways I almost thought the concept was a bit contrived. But that was because I hadn't applied it to the writing and critique that I was currently involved in. But it's something that I gradually came to recognize whenever I read a piece of writing that didn't allow me to sink in. And it was less that I believed I was not able to suspend my disbelief, but that I felt that the impact of having poor dialogue, confusing sentence structure, confusing punctuation, or any other element that, that stopped the story from being a smooth product, it was something that I hadn't really recognized. It was something that I felt was a resistance to me pulling in, and not something that I realized that was suspending my disbelief. But that's actually what was happening. And it became the challenge for myself whenever I began reviewing, critiquing my writing, to look for that moment when I felt pulled out of what I was reading and the moment that I was trying to experience, the moment I was trying to sink into. If there was something that was confusing, something that made me think as to whether or not that was the right word or the right phrasing, or if what I was reading hopefully out loud, sounded the way I wanted it to. And until those things are resolved, they are the things that prevent me from sinking into the writing. And they're also, as I came to realize, the thing that prevents me from suspending my disbelief. And it's only when I can do that, suspend my disbelief, that I can actually let myself become immersed in the world of the story. So I was really intrigued as I continued reading through the rest of this article and that the game maker who's writing this story and is speaking somewhat on behalf of other game makers admits that there's very little control over whether or not the gamer, the viewer, the person using the product 
will suspend their disbelief. They don't have the ability to step in and make it happen. And that basically, if you go into the most immersive game in the world with the intent not to believe it, there is no amount of effort or care or of any other element that can be placed into the game that's going to make that happen. You will always experience it as what it is, and most likely you'll be someone somewhere just sort of touching or experiencing a bunch of pixels on a screen. It's a challenge, I think. Because there are so many elements that go into game making, and he does a great job of describing how so much of the heavy lifting has to do with coding and rules and assets. And then how on top of that, the process is to create a game to make suggestions about where you are and what you're doing and how you as the player will or will not accept or reject those ideas. Now, he also points out that, you know, it doesn't mean that suspending your disbelief is required to enjoy your games. And then he moves into a different concept in gaming known as speedrunning. And how speedrunners don't disbelieve or suspend their disbelief. They spend days, weeks, or years trying to figure out how to manipulate game and its machine to go as fast as possible. And in this way, he talks about how they've created their own game. A game in which time is the sole measure of success. And it's a new way of approaching something that was thought to have already been previously defined by its own rules. Now he goes on to talk about things like playing Grand Theft Auto as a lawful citizen, or Dark Souls, without leveling up. A strategy game with the purpose of building something on top of every tile of the map, or even an epic fantasy RPG where you just become a pacifist farmer, you have in a sense created your own framework of gameplay and challenge. And this was the meaty part that I really sunk my teeth into. He points out that many people do things in games that might not make any progress or gain any money or further any missions because the game code doesn't really acknowledge those actions in any meaningful way. But the game code does still allow it. Now here's where it gets interesting. I mean, basically, as the player, there's really no difference between whether you assign value to something or whether you accept the game as developers have created it. Essentially, they try and limit the ways you can break the game in such a way that it suspends your disbelief. But in the end, every game developer has to accept that a game is just a suggestion. A place where people are asked to follow. And that really, as the gamer, as the participant, we have the opportunity to engage with that. Or not. And to which degree... We don't. Now this of course moves us into the challenge of difficulty. And one of the most common assumptions is that difficulty is directly correlated to skill. And he makes a point of putting difficulty and skill in quotes. And he then points out that this common assumption includes the idea that the one true experience is correlated to a certain level of skill 
which then equates difficulty. And that playing on a game and playing it at a higher difficulty is a true expression of what the game is, and that lower difficulties are somehow less of the game or less of the full value of the game. Now his argument is that difficulty is basically a compromise. It's a combination of a game's ability to communicate the game's goals, which is a map that doesn't tell you where to go in a giant flat map with nothing on it is hard, but no fun. It also gives you uh, a way to communicate means and to deliver a challenge proportional to your ability to play. This is something that may change the landscape of games and a future where assassins may not be a part of the gameplay or gaming universe. He then moves into something known as flow theory that describes that if you want a player to experience flow, that feeling of being completely immersed in a game where time passes and things like that just sort of, you know, become secondary or peripheral, that players need a challenge proportional to their skill length. Preferably something that oscillates a little bit above and sometimes just below their ability to handle it. If the challenge is too high, the player might experience frustration. And if someone's skill hot is too high for the challenge, they might get bored. So designers frequently try and make something that is about the same rate as the player. And in other words, a mismatch difficulty stops the player from allowing that sense of disbelief. It does what bad writing does when I'm reading it. It, it pulls you out. Now, with all this in mind, Mr. Ishmael points out that difficulty does not exist as an objective measurement. It actually exists as a relative expression, a difference between the player and the game's challenge. And that means that when game players think about difficulty, they most often have to think about the difficulty relative to the player, player's assumed understanding of the game system, goals and means. And that it's really easy to make a game that requires extreme skill. In fact, most game developers could put something like that together in only an hour. And really, just make it so that the deadly spikes are only one shade of color away from the backdrop and where you can only make the jump on one specific pixel. Time to one specific frame. But the challenge of creating difficulty in a game is actually about accessibility because, I mean, essentially, a program, an opponent that's continually moving at inhuman speeds but still landing every shot at precision wouldn't be that much fun either. Which moves us into the concept of mapping and how in 1996, Richard Bartle, creator of one of the earliest multiplayer games known as MUD1, suggested that there's a map of player archetypes in which most players fit in terms of behavior. He then divided a grid into two axes, acting to interacting and players to world. 
People that acted upon players were called killers, and they liked to blow stuff up. And people that acted upon the world were called achievers, and they play a game to achieve the goals set out in the game world. Those with the goal of interacting with players are called socializers, and they play games for the social aspect, whether talking about the way their stories played out with friends, or playing cooperatively online with others. And then finally, in the game are the people called explorers. And they play a game just to explore, really not interested in the quest or the purpose. And since most players fall into one or two of these categories, they develop distinct skill sets and interests when they play games. But more importantly, they also define the goal of a game differently, which means a different frame of fun and difficulty that relates them as well. Basically, for a killer, the difficulty comes up from giant, potentially optional bosses, while for the explorer, it is about climbing that one mountain in the corner of the map just to see what's there. So Mr. Ishmael wraps up that cheats and console commands, they essentially provide the gaming environment you want. If you wanted a chill or exploratory game, or if you just cared about the story, you could, through these cheats, create a concept that fits best for you. Now this is something that's relatively new, and one that recently came to the understanding that the implication of folding these values into one can be really difficult and it can lead to a challenge when trying to understand the role of difficulty in the relationship between players and the games. This means that as the industry continues to grow, there's going to be an increase in not only player diversity, player diversity, I mean, but also game diversity, which means that a game that was described at the beginning of this article, like Cuphead, now ships with a simple and regular mode. And it means that Assassin's Creed Origins will include a Taurus mode without any challenge. And that means that developers have more choice than ever to choose what they want their game to be. And that players have an increased expectation to be able to play games the way they want. Basically, whether they just want to explore the world of gorgeous art and gaming, or to get to know the characters that live there, or to challenge themselves with interesting mechanics. And in no way does that mean that the games are broken into hard or easy, or that they have to compromise, that hard games have to offer an easy mode, or that easy games should offer a hard mode. It just means that there are many game experiences that could be enjoyed by more people. And that the best news is that the more freedom players have in fine-tuning their experiences, the easier it is to create more extreme versions of a game. Whether those are much easier or much harder. Essentially, going back to his idea that these things aren't real, that they might be fake, sure, when it's all said and done, smoke and mirrors and imagination, these are still things that can turn to something that can stay with us for life. 
And according to Mr. Ishmael, it seems only fair to try and make sure as many people as possible can access what is in these games. And if it's something that impacts and stays with them, well then let's make it something that's going to stay with them and be something that they carry with them in the most positive way possible. I'm probably going to go back and reread this story again, and if possible, look for other elements that I can draw from. But what I'm going to be most encouraged by is the approach to create a world that has such a natural detail and flow that there's no desire for the person immersing themselves to ever feel like they're being pulled out certainly without intending to and that this concept of difficulty and easy while it's being described in the gaming format and medium has just as much to do with the concepts of writing and storytelling and I love it when something that I enjoy teaches me something about a craft that I love and I'm pursuing and that when I'm trying to look for ways to think about that, that sometimes they're right there in a place I'm already going to look, someplace I didn't even have to search, and yet I've made this great discovery. And just like he's talking about in this game experience, what I choose to do with it and how I choose to use that to do what I want to accomplish my creation of my game within this game, that's something that I, I'm really going to enjoy thinking about more and something I really look forward to experiencing. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now this next article has as much to do with the challenge facing writers promoting a new book as it does with editors looking for the kind of writer that can be not only a presence, but that can also be a catalyst for book sales. And the example that's featured in an article in the New Yorker, it's actually from a little while back, but it's something I've been holding on to because I knew it was something that I would also want to eventually record about as well. But the article in the New Yorker is called A Suspense Novelist Trail of Deceptions, and it focuses on a young man named Dan Mallory, who writes under the pen name pseudonym A.J. Finn, and went on to number one with his debut thriller, The Woman in the Window. At 39 years of age and living in Chelsea, New York, Dan Mallory is a former book editor turned novelist who is described as tall, good-looking, clever, and whose novel, The Woman in the Window, follows a previous set of examples like Gone Girl and The Girl on the Train by featuring a unreliable first-person female narrator, an apparent murderer, and a possible psychopath. Now, the article describes how so much of what Mallory was able to accomplish with his first novel as being completely extraordinary, if not unheard of. 
He sold the novel in a two-book, two-million-dollar deal. He dedicated it to a man he's described in his ex-boyfriend. And then he got a blurb from Stephen King, who says, one of those rare books that is really unputdownable. And that's the kind of thing I would love to get from any author on a book that I'd written. The novel then enters the Times bestseller list at number one, the first time that anyone has done that in 12 years. And Mallory begins to travel all around the world, promoting his book, pointing out that uh, a film version is already completed shooting, starring Amy Adams and Gary Oldman, and that those who worked with him and knew him have nothing but praises. Uh, someone who knew him at the publisher Simon and Chester said he was charming, brilliant, and a terrific writer of email. Others as a charming young man who wrote deft jacket copy. Which points back to a comment made by Craig Rain, a British poet and academic, who said that Mallory had been a charming and talented graduate student at Oxford. And while there, he had studied the novels of Patricia Highsmith, the novels featuring the character Tom Ripley, which are about a brilliant and charming imposter. And then the story of Mallory begins to reveal some interesting tidbits and details that are part of a narrative that doesn't actually add up, match up, or line up. And those include the following. Because he starts moving in to darker territory. After a series of interviews in Spain, Bulgaria, Estonia, where he makes repeated comments about his love for Alfred Hitchcock and French Bulldogs, he then makes a series of unscheduled and scheduled appearances, including places like Christchurch, New Zealand. And his reception is always positive. But then he proceeds to take hold of an opportunity and, as he says, go off script. And in doing so, reveals that he's been suffering from depression, and in order to alleviate it, he underwent electroconvulsive therapy three times a week for one or two months. And he claims that it worked. And the description by someone else who was with him is that he really appeared to engage in a very honest and intimate way that revealed to not only the person who was a witness, but as it was felt across the room, that what was being told was something that was very true. And it also created this huge surge of sympathy. And then it proceeds to get a little more confusing. Because it's something that he had mentioned previously. And in, in doing so, he'd referred to the electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, as something that had actually not been effective. Um, something that he had tried, but simply hadn't worked. And that this was an opportunity for him to point out that in many times he'd felt like he was an outsider looking in at his own success. And that his depression had caused him to think 
poorly of himself. And it was something that he had worked against and that he continues to work against. Even though, as he says, he's like Adele and thrived on both sides of the Atlantic. And that he had honored E.M. Forster's exhortation in Howard's End to only connect. And then describes himself as a man of discipline and passion. And then the details continue to, well, muddy or muddle. Maybe it's just the water that the details are floating in gets muddied or muddled. One example is that he was deemed attractive or at least semi-fit to be viewed by the semi-naked eye by a host family. Of course, in one version of the story, the host family is in China. In another version of that same story, the host family is Japanese. Now, the article takes a nice pause to point out that it's the responsibility of a writer to generate the buzz that goes with the book that they're trying to promote. It's actually something that's been part of literary history and that has been a compulsive response to appearing before a group of people potentially challenging, potentially supporting, potentially just there to see what might be provided. I can already think back to comments, statements made by James Frey back when he had his Million Little Pieces novel. And gradually his statements and the statements in the book didn't mesh regarding the time he spent in treatment, the time he spent incarcerated, or other aspects of his um, dependence and later attempts at recovery. And yet how, through those, the story of James Frey and the book that he wrote then and the books he's continued to write are part of his story as a writer and novelist. But also how there's been some, well, embarrassing moments, such as the example of J.T. Leroy, who was able to build a persona that deceived and confused the literary world, if not anyone else trying to follow her story, and actually is soon to be featured in an upcoming film starring Laura Dern. The challenge of understanding the life, work, and story of Dan Mallory becomes more continued as the writer continues following the pieces. The story includes a call to a senior editor at a New York publishing company to discuss the experience of working with Mallory, to which the editor then replies, My God, I knew I'd get this call. I didn't know if it would be you or the FBI. Which moves into a story about Craig Rain, who was a English literature instructor at New College in Oxford for 20 years until his retirement in 2010. And about a decade or so ago, Rain was reading an application from Dan Mallory, which proposed a thesis on homoeroticism in Patricia Highsmith's fiction. And the application, for all of its unusual qualities, included an extended personal statement. The story then goes on to describe how Mallory had to interrupt his studies 
with visits to America in order to nurse his mother who had breast cancer, and that there was a brother who was mentally disadvantaged and suffering from cystic fibrosis. He then tied this together with a connection to a very classic piece of literature when he pointed out that he often read aloud to his mother the passage in Little Women in which Beth dies with meek, tidy stoicism so that his mother could basically make fun of it, sneer at it. Now this instructor, Craig Rain, goes on to say that at some point Dan was nursing his mother, that he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, which he didn't want to tell her about, and that evidently it somehow cleared up, and then she died, and then his brother died. And this led to a discussion about uh, working on a series of poems and an essay related to that, which there was an attempt to expand it, which never occurred. And then the author points out that in 2013, the same Dan Mallory and his mother, Pamela, were seen at a wedding in 2013. And that when the instructor was told that Dan Mallory's mother, Pamela, was not dead, the reply from Rain was, if she's alive, he lied. And that was essentially the first impact, followed by two questions. One, is the father alive? Two, is this the right account? Because in the account that Rain had read, the father had also died. Now this is an extremely long story, one that stretches on for multiple pages, and I'm sure that in my attempts to relay it to you, I would only do the details of it a further, if not greater, injustice by trying to point out all the ways that these details don't match up. But what I am going to encourage is that you take the opportunity to find this article in the New Yorker. And again, a suspense novelist trail of deceptions by Ian Parker. And as it does, if you've had the opportunity to enjoy great literature, but also in that process become aware of the many personal issues that go with the writing publishing, and promotion of great literature, then this story will fit neatly into the framework of that discussion and also provide a great personal profile opportunity on a writer who is showing just how difficult the juggling of those two worlds and of that challenge of being not only a talented writer, but a talented promoter, can lead to a series of complications if at any point those stories begin with a lie. As this story begins to point out, they can only end with someone going through and attempting to discover that lie. And all of the, well, awkwardness that can arise when there's more than just one lie. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. 
Now, unless you've been living under a rock or hiding in a hole, you've probably heard that there is a trailer out for the upcoming The Joker movie, starring Joaquin Phoenix, and it's expected to provide some of the answers behind the creation of perhaps one of the most terrifying villains, supervillains, crazed villains, maniacal villains in comic book if not storytelling in movie history. The story of the Joker for me was always something of a annoying clown, someone who has a terrifyingly annoying laugh, terrifyingly menacing appearance as a crazed clown. But really nothing more than that, someone with a series of elaborate plans and plots and schemes that never actually follow through because the guy behind them is just so colorful and quirky and crazy that there's no way any of these convoluted plans could ever come true. And yet they have the threat of it. And this all changed when Alan Moore's legendary and seminal work, The Killing Joke, was released by DC Comics, in which it was really a challenge to see this light-hearted character take on the darkest and nastiest parts of his nature. And the result was something both beautiful and horrifying that also created an understanding for me that these villains cannot be simply argued on the basis of can they be redeemed? Can they be retaught, re-educated, in some way helped so that this is no longer the only course for them to take? And with the killing joke, I saw no redemption, no possibility of a solution. And it's something that stuck with me as I continued to read Batman into the 90s and then later into the... 2000s, or whatever we're calling this new century. And it was epitomized by the performance and portrayal by Heath Ledger in the now legendary The Dark Knight. And his version of Joker was really interesting. I really enjoyed the version played by Jack Nicholson in the first Batman movie. Um... But overall, I'd felt that what I was watching was actually Jack Nicholson dressed up as the Joker, and nothing more than that. And it had helped to reinforce this idea of campy, clueless clowning. But watching Ledger, I had the opportunity to get closer to that idea that had presented itself in The Killing Joke and had revealed glimpses in the 90s as writers and storytellers and artists attempted to capture the elements of that that worked best without getting into some of the muddier waters that Alan Moore tended to create whenever he got his hands on comic book character and wanted to create a sense of moral ambiguity or of moral questioning. And with Ledger, what I saw was this chance to 
try and manifest the Joker from within himself, to draw from the parts of himself where a character like the Joker could come from, and then using that to create a persona, something that existed within him and could then exist outside of him. And through that, he could channel all these different parts that, that made up his uh, portrayal or presentation of the Joker. To this day, it's considered one of the best, if not the best, example in portrayal. And it created a degree of darkness for Heath Ledger when he spoke about it in interviews. And it's a darkness that was referenced when he later died, sadly, of an overdose. And the challenge exists when creating and portraying a character like the Joker. Because when someone has taken it as far as Heath Ledger did, the attempt to do the same is, of course, tempered by the challenge that one doesn't want to appear to be walking exactly in his footsteps or to be trying to do something so similar that it might be confused with his previous attempt. And yet also to recognize that what he was able to accomplish as the Joker is something very rare and something that required a great deal of work and that not everyone, despite their best efforts, will achieve. I enjoyed the attempt by Jared Leto in Suicide Squad. I thought he did his version of the Joker and the Joker that existed within him. But I also know that fan response was pretty evenly split onto what form of Joker this was and how well fans could identify and engage with it compared to the version that has essentially become the standard when Heath Ledger last had the role. An interesting twist with the current version, starring Joaquin Phoenix, is that while it's also an origin story, the story of Heath Ledger's sort of lingering shadow over the Joker was addressed recently in a bit of social media magic where a picture of Joaquin Phoenix and Heath Ledger together, appearing very chummy if not brotherly, is turned into a picture of them both as their versions of the Joker with Heath Ledger encouraging his brother to go for it and give it his best shot. Overall, whether or not the audience before the movie and fans decide to give Joker a fair shot, it will be the performance by Joaquin Phoenix. The ability for him to manifest who the Joker is inside of him, what that persona, when it's drawn from himself, looks like. That will be what this movie is measured against, because one, there can only be one person performing a character, and two, there can be no imitators. It's simply not possible. If Heath Ledger suddenly appears in Joaquin Phoenix's performance, the authenticity will be lost, and it'll just feel like... Well, a copy attempt 
it will feel like someone took tracing paper and tried to draw the outlines instead of actually figuring out how to draw the same image but with their own personal style. And I know when I'm going to watch The Joker, because I guarantee I will be there to watch it in theaters, that there's going to be that desire on my part to look for all the ways that this original story is told by a creative actor, and more importantly, how much of it really seems to be coming from within him, how much of the Joker he is able to manifest within himself. Because I think one of the things that most people who've read enough about the Joker have come to recognize is that he's something that exists within all of us. It's a part of us that requires that something in us allow it to happen. Much like Joker's representation is the opposite of Batman. It's also the representation that for Batman to be who he is, there has to be a want. And for the Joker to be who he is, there has to be an ability to shrug all that off and to do outside of want, outside of discipline, to actually do the terrifying, the scary, the unimaginable, the horrifying, to go beyond the limits and in doing so, see what kind of person, character, what sort of identity could exist afterwards. Because once you've gone into that dark place, once you've drawn it all up and then using it, once you've done the unthinkable, unimaginable, and unforgivable, what you're left with as a character, as a person, is the real challenge. And it's part of the fear that exists with a character like Joker. We're all encouraged, taught, reminded of the challenge that exists if we don't place enough control on ourselves to never allow that to happen. And the Joker is a bit of a warning of what can happen when we relinquish that control and are willing to simply give in to the darkest corners of our nature. Because when we do, who and what we become may be something that we can't live with, or may be something that, once changed, could never be changed back. More importantly, while I've got all these wanderings and ramblings about the new Joker movie coming out, I'm really excited to hear what yours are. And I'm looking forward to you sharing with me, either on social media, or maybe even in another form of comment. We'll talk more after the movie. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now it's time for a little trip through history. In an article called Five More Controversial Comics, which of course brings to mind my immediate follow-up response, which is what were the first five controversial comics? The article featured on GEMR.com, or Gemmer, Gemmer, Gamer, focuses on five comics that crossed a line within the comic book reading, writing, reviewing, publishing community 
and how crossing these lines led to really negative consequences and provided a lesson and a warning for those to follow. This little journey in history starts in 1971 with The Amazing Spider-Man, or I'm sorry, Amazing Spider-Man, number 96. And while it was published in 1971, the story itself references the introduction of the Commerce Code Authority in 1954, which explicitly stated that publishers were not allowed to have any mention of illicit drugs at all, be it positive or negative. And yet there was a national discussion about a rise in concern regarding drug culture among America's youth. And in recognition of this, the National Institute of Mental Health reached out to Marvel Comics and asked for their assistance raising the awareness of the issues of drug use in their most popular title. So, Marvel and Spider-Man writer and co-creator Stan Lee created a three-issue arc in which Harry Osborn, Peter Parker's friend, and the son of wealthy inventor and all-around money man Norman Osborn, begins taking drugs. And despite the Comics Code not allowing the mention of drugs in comic books, Marvel went ahead and printed three issues anyway, and did it without the code stamp of approval on their cover, something that previously had not been allowed. Now, New York Times heard about the story, proceeded to interview all the parties involved, and the response pointed that the Comics Code people were not too pleased, and that (laughs) DC Comics publisher at the time, Carmine Infantino, took the opportunity to go ahead and, as the article says, put the boot to Marvel. But Stan Lee stood by his decision, saying if this would help one kid anywhere in the world not to try drugs or to lay off drugs one day earlier, then it's worth it. And the incident, with no real surprise, pointed to the ridiculousness of the comics code and began the wheels turning for what would be the code's eventual demise. But book number two on this list created a different controversy by committing a very different offense. Fast forward, oh, 17 years into the future. It's 1988. Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme, number 15, features a spooky cover And on it is simply the image of Christian music recording artist Amy Grant. And at the very bottom of the issue, in yellow bubble, are the green, kind of creepy letters that spell out the mystery of Morgana Blessing. So, while it's not uncommon... As the article points out, for an artist to use photos or images of real-life people as a reference to work, the artist in this choice, Jackson Guise, chose the wrong picture. And he more than referenced the image and basically just copied it. And the image of Amy Grant was from the cover of her Greatest Hits album. Now, what happened next 
was interesting in its specificity. Amy Grant sued Marvel, but not for using her image without permission, which would seem to be the most direct route when dealing with this issue. Instead, she asserted in her lawsuit that by using her picture on the cover of Doctor Strange, people might assume she approved of a book that promoted magic, sorcery, and the dark arts, and thus alienate her fans and harm her identity and her career. Marvel settled, and although they were quick to pull the issue from the the shelves, enough time had passed that Die Hard, Doctor Strange fans, well, they already had their issue in hand, and chances are they weren't going to give it back. Third number on this list features The Phantom a comic book character who was created in 1936 by Lee Falk. And this one not only has uh, controversy built into it because of the time when it was created, but also the lens through which it can be viewed as we look back on it almost a hundred years away now. I mean, granted, it's 1936, and this is 2019, but 16 years from 100 doesn't feel like that big of a difference as soon as you start measuring on a uh, long enough scale. Biggest problems with this is that essentially the story features a white man who arrives on an African island inhabited by black natives and then becomes Lord of the Jungle. Now, contemporary critics have accused the comic of promoting white supremacy, um, There have been other points to its dated tone, nature, and storytelling. But many of its defenders point to the fact that The Phantom was considered very progressive for its time, and that it only echoed and reflected current beliefs of the society society, that it was written for. Um, that it broke taboos by depicting strong female characters and that it also depicted a black president, which was something not seen in more popular contemporary comic books of the time. Now, while the Lord of the Jungle aspect for Phantom Stories has since been, of course, retconned, The idea that the character represents a form of white supremacy is one that's never really been settled and has lingered over the character, much like a shadow, though sadly not like the shadow. Maybe if only because, in my opinion, mixing in the shadow would only make this story that much more fun for readers like me. A few more here on the list, and then we'll move on out. These last two include a more recent story, that of Frank Cho and the Marvel character Spider-Woman. Now, the biggest problem in media is the depiction of women and sexualization, whether it occurs in books, film television, or, more importantly, comic books. And in 2014, uh, Italian artist Milo Manara 
created a variant cover for the brand new Spider-Woman number one. And the image was simply too sexy. And mainstream media response was categorized as a backlash. This led to Marvel pulling the variant from the shelves and hoping to quiet the issue for good. Until January 2015, when artist Frank Cho, who was also famous for depicting sexy ladies, decided that he would go ahead and produce a tribute to Minara's original cover. Cho's attempt was to recognize what Minara had done, but to also provide a sense of commentary. His attempt to do this was to draw the same cover that Minara had created, but to include a bit of social commentary with Spider-Man checking out the suggested pose and commenting. Suffice to say that this was like pouring gasoline on a roaring fire, and that outrage from fans and media was quick and angry, but that the story got stranger when Cho responded to the controversy as only he could, which was to create more sexualized covers. And a cause-and-effect relationship began. The more people that took to Twitter to complain about the over-sexualization of women in Cho's work, the more covers that were over-sexualized were produced by Cho. These colloquially became known as the outreach covers and were a series of images that both parodied sexism as well as criticized it. All this really ended up doing, though, was lead to Cho losing his cover artist gig on Wonder Woman over at DC, and then a follow-up complaint by writer Greg Rucka, who argued that one of Cho's variants showed too much of Wonder Woman's skin, and the cover was edited. In protest, Cho walked off the series, and that's the last I've heard of him as far as the headline world is concerned. One last story on the uh, five more controversial comics. And it has to do with something more recent. The uh, X-Men in 2017 debuted a series of new books. And one was called X-Men Gold. And it featured art by Indonesian artist Ardian Siaf. And the book went to print. And fans picked it up and began reading. And not long after that, Indonesian fans began to notice that Sayaf had hidden some rather political messages. The repeated series of numbers 21251 and QS5 colon 51 were found scattered throughout the book, and it was later revealed that they relate to protests against the then Christian governor of Jakarta, who was running for re-election. And this governor, Basuki, was accused of blasphemy and promoting large-scale protests, which the number 212 represents. These protests were reportedly spurred on by the Islamic Defenders Front, an organization which was known for violent rhetoric and hate crimes, and that QS 5 51 
also related to protests by IDF, which pushed anti-Jewish and anti-Christian messages. Marvel was quick to respond and alert the art for future printings of the issue, and immediately canceled Syaf's contract. Quite an interesting mix of comic book controversies, and I think out of them all, I struggled to find a favorite. But what I enjoyed the most was how each one pointed to the ways in which there are stated and, I'm sure, implied or inferred rules when it comes to working in comics. And if you don't respect those rules, there's always the opportunity, well, for not only controversy, but for pushback and the potential for unemployment. And if you can hear this snarbling snoring in the background, my little French bulldog Bruno has just had breakfast. Which reminds me, if you're looking to feed the social media beast, or content about me on social media accounts, you can find me on Instagram at SethTheWriter, on Twitter at the number one and more singleton, that's at one M-O-R-E-S-I-N-G-L-E-T-O-N On Facebook at Seth Singleton Storyteller On my website at Seth Singleton Storyteller And on Tumblr, YouTube, and others Simply put, if you type in Seth Singleton and Storyteller into any Google or otherwise popular search engine you're guaranteed to find all the list of ways where you can reach me. Or just go to my website, SethSingletonStoryteller.com. You'll find them all there. Can't wait to hear from you. And of course, as the snarbling Bruno will remind you, it's always important to feed the beast. And for one last thought, there are a few things as gratifying as knowing that someone's picking up something you've written or recorded, and giving it a chance. For everyone who presses play on an episode of Storytelling with Seth and gives a new story from this storyteller another chance, you're letting me know that this is something that you continue to enjoy and that I can continue to provide. Of course... I wouldn't be here without you, and that includes your support. Just so you know, every time that you do listen, I get financial support. And on some apps, like Radio Public, one episode gives me immediate support. And if you listen to three in a row, well, the numbers just add up in my favor. I'm not out there driving flashy cars or buying up houses the only thing I do with every cent that I earn from you is put it back into making this the best form of storytelling that I can and the best example of storytelling that I hope you're hearing. If you'd like to learn more about ways you can support, you can click on the support button, probably available right there, 
on the display screen of whatever podcast platform you're using. But if for some reason it's not, go ahead and click on the link to my Anchor FM site. And there are a number of ways that you can consider lending support. Or let me know if there's another way that I haven't heard of and you have some great information about. If nothing else, every time that I sit down to record, my hope is that I find a way to encourage you to listen and provide you with reasons to. And if you think I'm right, tell a friend. Thanks again for listening to Storytelling with Seth. I can't wait to share my next story with you.